Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Zora Neale Hurston is one of the most influential writers of 20th century literature. She's perhaps best known for her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, but she was also a talented anthropologist. She traveled to the Caribbean and around the American South, documenting and collecting the stories of rural Black communities, much like the one she grew up in, in Florida. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The new PBS documentary, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, focuses on Hurston's work as an anthropologist. Here's a clip from that film. It references Hurston's 1935 book, Mules and Men. It's her first formal collection of stories and folklore. Why a text like Mules and Men is so important is that she resists the simple extraction, cultural extraction. It becomes an opportunity for her to tell what she feels to be a more authentic story of that Black experience. Hurston is reporting on a set of experiences that she had using the first person. Whether it's a juke joint or a turpentine camp or a lumber mill or a hoodoo initiation ritual. She's taking you as a reader into a society that she, as a scientist, is desperately trying to understand. I went outside to join the woofers since I seemed to have no standing among the dancers. I stood there awkwardly, knowing that the too ready laughter and aimless talk was a window dressing for my benefit. His laugh has a hundred meanings. That's an excerpt from a new documentary on Zora Neale Hurston. You heard from Vassar professor Eve Dunbar, Georgetown professor Charles King, and an actor reading Hurston's words. Later in the show, we revisit a conversation with Eastern Connecticut State University historian Stacy Close. We'll talk about the cultural impact of Connecticut's tobacco fields on Black Americans. But first... Tracy Heather Strain. She's Corwin Fuller Professor of Film Studies at Wesleyan University. She's also the writer, director, and producer of Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space. The film premiered this week on the PBS series, American Experience. Tracy, welcome to Disrupted. Hi, thank you. I'm really delighted to be here with you. I'm excited to talk about this film because many of us know Zora Neale Hurston as a noted writer, a prolific writer. But this is a film that takes a different approach to Zora Neale Hurston, a a fuller approach, if you will, that varies from some of the existing films about her. What is it about Zora Neale Hurston that led you to take this particular approach? I'm really blessed uh, because one day I was in a grocery store here in Connecticut and I got a call from the head of American Experience, Cameo George, and she asked me if I would be interested in making a film for them on Zora Neale Hurston. What am I going to say? Of course, I said, yes, I would be honored and delighted to do so. And right then we talked about the fact that she would let, she wanted me to focus on 
uh, her relationship to anthropology, how anthropology played a role in this this work that you mentioned, you know, this this literary output. And so that became the charge, make a film that included not only Zornia Hurston's biography, but made sure that I intersected with her anthropology journey. And then also I, it required me to thinking about how to provide context so that the anthropology made sense. I often think that people who aren't in higher education have a particular view of what anthropology means, what it looks like and what the focus of study is. But imagining what it meant for Zora Neale Hurston to be a student of anthropology during her particular time as a Black woman who started her studies at Howard University before moving on, that context totally shapes what anthropology could mean at the time and what she could mean in claiming a space within that field. Give us a sense of that, of what it meant to be an anthropologist during the time of Zora Neale Hurston. So one of the things that's really central to understanding Zora Neale Hurston's relationship to anthropology is to understand that she grew up in an all black town. This town was called Eatonville. It is called still today, Eatonville, Florida. And it was one of the first incorporated all black towns in the United States. And one of the things that we talk about in the film is that it appears that Zora Neale Hurston had some innate cultural anthropologist tendencies. And one of those that comes through a lot of her work, is she was drawn to the porch of the general store, Joe Clark's general store, the porch there where adults were gathering and they were telling stories and gossiping and you know, folklores passing back and forth and lies. And she was one of those kids that just wanted, she was just attracted to it and wanted to hear it. And she herself says in later writings, that this was important to her. And later when she discovered anthropology at Barnard College, she felt like anthropology gave her a way to see her own culture. She described it as the spyglass of anthropology allowed her to see herself. It allowed her to step back and see what she was already drawn to as something important, significant and worthy of study and further exploration. I want to stay with that point about something that is worthy of study and exploration, because often for scholars of color, for students of color who are studying things related to race or some aspect of identity that they may share, it is often undervalued and marginalized and dismissed as me search, that it can't be credible, it can't be objective, it can't be meaningful because you are just studying yourself. But Hurston is one of the early people to really critique that view and to show that there is value in the everyday observations, but also the ways that it connects beyond her personal experience to these more traditional paths in anthropology and other fields about the meaning of community and the meaning of context. Walk us through a little of how Zora Neale Hurston became an anthropologist and how she embraced that role of being this sort of cultural observer who could then tie to the context. What was it about her experience that helps us think about it more broadly? So if we connect Zora Neale's Eatonville experience to uh, Barnard, first of all, 
she writes a paper in an anthropology class. She's encouraged to take an anthropology class because she was taking so much literature, I, I, as I understand it. And she wrote a paper and no one knows what this paper was as far as I've been able to find out. But it was it brought her to the attention of Franz Boas, who was considered one of the world's foremost anthropologists. He was later dubbed the father of modern anthropology and the father of American anthropology. So that like the British had a different anthropology emphasis. And he himself had a struggle within anthropology. He was trying to change the field and he was changing it from a field where people were making judgments on others by from the, the, the views of people who didn't even travel to different lands. You know, the, the, the people, they call them armchair anthropologists. So people were making pronouncements on other people who are, you know, brown people, black people, um, and, and disguise, just deciding what they were like and what they were deciding is that there was this hierarchy and they and there were savages at the bottom and barbarians in the middle. And guess what? The civilized people at the top. And Franz Boas was one of those people who was dismantling this way of thinking or trying to. And he was also considered a significant anti-racist at that time. So naturally, Zora Neale Hurston and other people in the uh, Harlem that are considered part of the Harlem Renaissance are attracted to him and the supporters. Du Bois was a supporter of Boaz as well. So he sees something in Hurston in her writings that led, led him to believe. I'm sure it was rich with description that she could be someone to go down and collect because a lot of white folklorists and other people collecting weren't penetrating. Zora Neale Hurston called this resistance of black people feather bed resistance. They would say things to make people seem like they heard something or give them some answer or just smile, but they weren't giving up the good stuff, right? They weren't giving up the true stuff. So when Zora Neale Hurston, Boaz made it possible for Zora Neale Hurston to travel down south in 1927, she just had a few more credits before she could graduate. And she herself encountered featherbed resistance. And in part, which happened was she went down, as she described it, I was speaking my Barnardese. Pardon me, do you know any folktales? And no one was telling her anything. And so she had to reconstitute how she was going to do this. And when she went back later that year, she was more an insider she, she realized you had to get people to trust you and you had to get people to, she had to give and as well as get, you know, who wants to be studied like an object, right? And so she was able, and she's had, you know, everyone says she had a charming personality. So she was able to get people to share things. And she was so excited too. Like when we read some of the papers she wrote Langston Hughes about her research, she was just so excited and she thought black culture and Southern black rural culture was important and significant. And you're right. When people are studying pe people from their own community, it is perceived as not really doing objective, authentic, objective research. Somehow you're just too close and you can't, you can't analyze, but who best to analyze black culture than black people? Right. You know, if it's going to be analyzed, there are so many nuances and things that uh, I, I encounter this sometimes when I'm making my documentaries, you know, uh, and, and that you need to know certain things. I've had people I've interviewed say, you know what I'm talking about, you know, that way. And 
you know, that wouldn't work out with everyone. And I might that uh, somebody else who was white might not get that same story because that person wouldn't be able to say, you know what I'm talking about. As you are speaking about this, Tracy, I'm, I'm nodding along because I know I know that experience, that idea of what's understood doesn't have to be spoken. And I imagine we both in our professional paths, particularly in academia, have had that experience of having to justify the ways in which race can be a symbol and source of critique, but also a symbol of credential to speak to the communities that you are there to understand, not just to study and objectify. And I want to talk about that piece of Hurston's work in 1927, that she's doing this as a Black woman going back to the South. I first encountered the work of Zora Neale Hurston in the South in 10th grade, shout out to Dr. Locke, my English teacher. And imagine reading Zora Neale Hurston in this very white classroom, the only Black student there with a white teacher who said to the class, you cannot understand American folklore and community without engaging the work of Zora Neale Hurston. And on her trip, she was able to pull these stories that people wouldn't have shared with others. Not that they didn't see the value, but they weren't sure how others would approach them because these are communities that are often overlooked. What do you think she was able to pull from that experience of of helping people understand, appreciate, and at the very basic level, see these communities that were often overlooked. Zora Neale Hurston was able to pull rich stories of people in America, in in Polk County, Florida, in New Orleans, uh, where she studied hoodoo. She went to Haiti and tried to her best to uh, understand uh, Haitian culture and zombies. She was very concerned about stereotypes and and many of the individuals who were considered part of the Harlem Renaissance were as well. Um, that, you know, it's the twenties, the Klan is, is, is quite pre- you know, visible. Uh, there are sundown towns. Um, people didn't even think that black people had culture in some cases. Other people thought that the culture of African-Americans with some kind of degraded culture of a great African past. So there's a a lot of things at play. But Zora Neale Hurston says, what is happening here? And I'll just speak to, you know, Southern Black America, rural Black America, is very significant. These stories, the way people are making meaning through these stories and telling these tales about animals and, and how they use language, this is important and relevant. And I think that people need to know that what they do is important. You know, what they do is contributing to American culture. There are many terms and phrases that are considered American. They're actually derived from the African-American experience and African-American culture. And Zora Neale Hurston recognized this back in the 20s and 30s. And she thought it was her business I mean, this woman thought it was her business in a, a kind of a possessed way, right? She was a tenacious person to try to tell stories and collect folklore of African-Americans. And she faced a lot of obstacles trying to do it. But she felt that she wanted to tell the stories of her people. And, and in one application, she says, I want to do it in the Negro way, not in the white man's way, which I was sort of surprised to see that she actually 
laid it out just so plainly like that, unapologetically in an application for support. When we return, more with Wesleyan filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain. Her documentary is Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space. It premieres this week on the PBS series American Experience. And later, Professor Stacy Close on the history of Connecticut's tobacco fields. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We've been talking to Tracy Heather Strain about her new film, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space. It premieres on PBS this week. Here's another clip from the film. Hurston headed south, mid-June 1935, to the Georgia Sea Islands, Eatonville, and the Everglades, on a job to collect folklore. Her latest travels were to facilitate the work of two white folklorists recording Negro folk songs for the Library of Congress. But it wasn't easy. Sensitive to black stereotyping, at one point Hurston adamantly stopped one of her colleagues from photographing a young boy eating a watermelon. And due to segregation laws in southern towns, Hurston frequently slept in her car while her colleagues rested in a motel. Sometimes the researchers captured Hurston's own singing. In addition to hearing Zora Neale Hurston's singing voice in the documentary, you'll also see film footage that Hurston herself captured. Ask Tracy to talk more about that footage. We were so delighted to be able to travel to the Library of Congress and see motion picture film footage that Zora Neale Hurston shot herself. She was able to have a motion picture camera through a complicated relationship. She was uh, supported by Charlotte Osgood Mason, who was a white, wealthy woman who supported uh, several other artists, including Langston Hughes, and she supported Elaine Locke. But she actually hired Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston was her employee who was supposed to go down south and collect folklore. Now, why did this white lady want folklore, black folklore? Well, she was someone who subscribed to primitivism. It was a movement where white Westerners 
thought that if they could get closer to nature and primitive peoples, that somehow these things that that would be collected would enhance their lives. It seems like it's a reaction to industrialization and urbanization. You know, like it's, it, you know, the United States was changing. It's interesting at, at different periods in our country or in history, these rapid changes and how things happen are very stressful to people and, and people find variety of ways to cope. And I would argue that in some ways there is a kind of primitism, primitivism that's still at play today in terms of how people are trying to deal with stress and anxiety and things like that, which isn't to say you shouldn't deal with it, but I think you know what I'm talking about, right? It kind of drawing things from other cultures. So Charlotte Osgood Mason gives her money for a camera, she money for a car and some other things. And Zora Hurston's traveling around in a car. She actually has already acquired a pistol from an earlier trip <laughs> to, for her own, to defend herself. And she, I don't know where she learned how to use the camera, how to expose the film, how to get it processed, all that stuff, right? But we we benefit today from these beautiful images of black people moving. We see children and adults at play, at work. It's She didn't use the camera on wealthy people or middle-class people. She went and she was collecting visuals of everyday black people and I feel like you can see in the footage this the warm and, and trusting relationship between her subjects and her. Uh, I don't know how you felt about it, but I felt there was an, a positive energy that was very wonderful to experience. And to be able to capture that on film and still have it resonate today. And I'm thinking here of, you know, the recent crop of AI-generated moving images of historical figures, of Black people from the past. And there are lots of questions about that. But it humanizes in a way, it creates a connection in a way that actually helps bridge that history to where we are today. You, Tracy, are a filmmaker, you're a storyteller, and you connect that past to the present. And I wonder, what is it about Zora Neale Hurston her role as an anthropologist, all of the challenges that she faced of, you know, not having the credential of a PhD and then often being dismissed as not being a real anthropologist or not even being appreciated as a writer in the the height of the Harlem Renaissance in the same ways that some of her male contemporaries were. What is it about Zora Neale Hurston that you think still is resonant today in terms of where we are in the U.S.? The way I understand it, that young anthropologists and maybe probably all anthropologists who identify as a Black have challenges in the field. You mentioned before that there's this meism. I re- recently heard uh, two younger scholars discuss the, if this very issue on their podcast, Zora's Daughters. And I, um, it was disheartening to think that it's still rampant, that you know, the hard work that people do to go out in the field, to form connections, to document things is is undermined. So I think there's a lesson for a, a wider society to, to reevaluate how they're looking at people who, who want to study, you know, their own communities, no matter what community it is. I think that Zora Neale Hurston provides a lesson today about 
she's she knows her stuff. Let me put it that way. She has strong opinions about things, but she's she was well read and she was studied, and she didn't just pull her ideas out of you know thin air. It wasn't all about her feelings, right? And so we're in a culture today where a lot of people are making decisions and making comments based on feelings, and I think she is quite a role model for young people to say, if you want to do something important and significant or creative or just follow your dreams, it's going to take work. The idea that there's a overnight success is, 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 is a myth. And, you know, Serena Horson had to wait till, unfortunately, she passed away to, to become the significant figure that she probably, she should have been during her lifetime. But uh, but getting back to my point, that she faced a lot of obstacles and she did not let them stop her from her goals. She seemed to, I'm not saying she didn't have, she didn't feel badly about it, but she brushed herself off and tried again. How can I get this money? How can I do this? You know, how can, I was, I was inspired. It's made me feel like, oh, don't be afraid to apply for this thing or that grant. Or if they say no, so what? They say, no, try again or try something else. And so I feel like she's a huge uh, inspirational uh, role model for those of us who want to do creative work that requires us to raise money. <laughs> it's a lot of creative work. And I can hear the reverence in your voice for Zora Neale Hurston and what she navigated. And you are a woman of color making films often about other women of color that have been overlooked or undervalued. You have this award-winning film about Lorraine Hansberry, who, like Zora Neale Hurston, had these fights and had these struggles, created a beautiful body of work that was not without struggle, but encourages other people to think about the value that may not be recognized in the moment, but creates this legacy. As a filmmaker, as a storyteller, who is focused on these very powerful women. And as we were preparing for this conversation, I kept going back to that line in their eyes are watching God, uh, you know, that black women are the mules of the earth that often called on to perform labor, labor and never respected or treated for their value and their contribution. How do you navigate that space of you have this awesome responsibility and, and opportunity to tell these stories while still navigating the challenges that often the subjects of your film also navigated? I think that one of the reasons that it doesn't, it doesn't make it easier for me to do these subjects, is, but I, I can relate to my subjects. I can relate to some of the things that happened to Lorraine Hansberry. I can relate to some of the things that happened to Zora Neale Hurston because I am a black woman. I'm an African-American woman in the United States. Uh, and I think that it's been a challenge to be a documentary filmmaker. Uh, the, the film I made on Lorraine Hansberry took me 14 years to, to get out there because it was difficult for me to get money for it. For some reason, people thought, well, they've read Raisin and Son, and, and, and since she died six years later, what else is there to know about Lorraine Hansberry? And even though I wrote all these proposals and different things, it was a it was a it was a challenge. You know, I, I, I could imagine if somebody else with the same material who did not look like me 
had tried to get the money, they probably would have gotten the money. But I, you know, I can't say that for sure. But fortunately, the National Endowment for the Humanities was behind me in encouraging all along the journey. And, and then I finally got support of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And then we did a, a stressful $100,000 Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> then other people said, okay. And I, you know, the thing is, I had already won a Peabody Award. I, my husband and I have already had already been making two-hour documentaries on historical figures that you know were received well. We did it on time, on budget, and so you know you have to. I have to ask myself, well, what was it about me wanting to do Lorraine Hansberry and A Raisin in the Sun is most one of the most read books in North America. You know, everyone was reading it in school. Um, why did I have these issues? So I can relate to the struggles of, of my characters in, in various ways. It's amazing to hear the things that we pointed out as being struggles in academia of those who share some identity with the subject are thought of as less subjective and less credible. And those who have no connection to a subject are often seen as being more credible or authoritative to tell those stories. And certainly Zora Neale Hurston experienced that during her time, Lorraine Hansberry in her time, you in your time. As you think about this film, this project, and you know, as it makes it w its way out into the world, what do you want people to take away of learning not just about Zora Neale Hurston as anthropologist, as author, as curator of culture and story, but about the subjects and the people that she was writing about? What do you hope people take away? When I look at the film, i put together with a team of people. I want them to experience the beauty of blackness. I We put in a lot of images on the screen, not just the ones that Zora Neale Hurston shot, of, of everyday black people in a variety of situations, young people, uh, uh, older people, people having fun, people working. I don't think you know, our society has allowed those kind of images to be seen as much as they should be seen. And I think that it's important for people to think about the range. There's a wide range of black experiences and only some get foregrounded in our culture. And I think that there's a way that Southerness in general and black Southerness, you know, in particular is looked down upon. And men, many of us, you know, have roots in the South. I mean, I, you know, my mother grew up in partly in Orlando, Florida. Her mother is from, you know, many of us are still very connected uh, or not too far off, you know, from being connected to the South. And so it's an important part of her heritage. And I want us, I want everyone to embrace it. And I want general audiences, no, you know, matter what your background, to look at Zora Neale Hurston as an example of a significant, uh, an American figure, an important American historical, literary, social scientist, important figure who is should be included in the canon overall. Like it shouldn't be like, oh, when we're doing our black thing, we're gonna pick out Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston and other figures, whether we're talking about Latino, Asian, you know, we're all a 
part, Native America, we're all a part of building this country and all of our stories should be embraced. And it shouldn't be perceived as, oh, revisionist history or yeah, we shouldn't be tokenized. You know? So I would just hope there's a, we, this, is, this is a part of a sea change. I see, you know, little kernels of change. Uh, sometimes you wonder if it's they're going to, you know, I see doors opening and you wonder if they're going to stay open. You know, I already hear people talking about it, feeling like there's a certain kind of closing since 2020, right? You know, we had our big reckoning where a lot of people became, were forced to become aware of the racism and, and, and um, in our society. And, I like my filmmaker, some of my filmmakers friends feel like the opportunities are just starting to narrow again. And so we have to kind of be vigilant and keep fighting. Well, we appreciate your vigilance and we appreciate you for uplifting and celebrating the beauty of culture and community. Tracy Heather Strain is Corwin Fuller Professor of Film Studies at Wesleyan University. She's also writer, director and producer of a new film called Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space. It's for the PBS series, American Experience. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Coming up, we hear about the legacy of Connecticut's tobacco farming. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Several notable Black Americans of the 20th century spent formative summers working in Connecticut. National figures like Thurgood Marshall, Hattie McDaniel, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They all came to Connecticut during their college years to work in the tobacco fields. In his autobiography, Dr. King reflects on his experiences in Connecticut and a long train ride back home to Georgia. Here are Dr. King's words, voiced by the Reverend Philippe E.C. Andal. After that summer in Connecticut, it was a bitter feeling going back to segregation. It was hard to understand why I could ride wherever I pleased on the train from New York to Washington, and then had to change to a Jim Crow car at the nation's capital in order to continue the trip to Atlanta. I could never adjust to the separate waiting rooms, separate eating places, separate restrooms, partly because the separate was always unequal and partly because the very idea of separation did something to my sense of dignity and self-respect. That was an excerpt from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s autobiography. Our next guest is Dr. Stacy Close. He's history professor at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's also a contributor to the book, African American Connecticut Explored. I started our conversation by asking about tobacco farming and its origins in Connecticut. The thing about tobacco farming in Connecticut, it goes back a, uh, a number uh, of years. Uh, you could find it in small places and spaces in the colonial period. Uh, you could also find it in the 19th century. But in terms of the period of the Great Migration, it's around 1915 that it has a transformative impact, not only on places and spaces in the South, but also Connecticut because by 1915, there's a labor shortage in Connecticut's tobacco industry. And the industry had been modeled and organized, at least in the modern sense, uh, through the work of the Connecticut Tobacco League Growers Association. And so you get the shade tree tobacco industry that's established. But around World War I, they began to lose workers. Men who are Polish, Lithuanian, they began to go back home 
uh, to be a part of the war effort, World War I effort, and there's a labor shortage. And so the Kinetics Tobacco Growers Association, they need to find workers. And so they turn their attention first to New York and try to recruit 200 women to come and work tobacco. It turns out not to be a very good idea. And so they decide that they need people who know tobacco work from the very beginning. And, and so they contact the National Urban League. And the National Urban League contacts the presidents of historically Black colleges. And one of the first to come northward to bring his students, in essence, uh, is John Hope of Morehouse College. And so by 1915, there's the movement for college students to come north to work tobacco. John Hope, being an um, enterprising president, knows that the students can use that money to pay for tuition uh, during the year. And the Connecticut Tobacco Growers Association, they want workers that they believe will be well-behaved and who will understand the standards and norms and what better people than young college men. First from Morehouse, and then you get young college students from Howard, North Carolina A&T, and other historically Black colleges who will eventually be part of that wave as well. So I grew up in Virginia. And I was always fascinated hearing these stories from my family members about taking this long bus ride to Connecticut every summer to work in the tobacco fields. It just did not make sense to me that these young people would leave Virginia to go to Connecticut and work in the tobacco fields. But as you mentioned, this became an important source of income, first for college students at historically Black colleges, primarily young men, but for other Southern families who needed a way for their families to be able to earn that access. But it also was about creating greater access for young people beyond the income. How was that movement of people coming from the South, coming to Connecticut, working within those fields, how was that important as an escape or as a temporary respite from the Jim Crow South? Yeah, it, it, you are correct. It was, in essence, a respite for the Jim Crow South because if you're on the bus or you're riding the train, and I, and I talked to a lot of people who migrated from the South who were riding on the train south to the north, and it was a bit of a harrowing experience. I'll give you two examples. I grew up near Albany, Georgia. For the people who came from that area, one of the locations where you had to get the train really to go north where it was from Albany, Georgia. But for the people from Cuthbert and Americas, and at least in the 20s, before they would board the train, they were harassed by local police officers. Some were arrested for daring to leave the places where they were. And then you board the train, and then there's a period in time right before you get to the Mason-Dixon line where the train cars are segregated. And it's not until you cross that Mason-Dixon line, as they say, that curtain comes down. And there's a transformative experience that you, you get. And so the folks from Southwest Georgia talked about it. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, a sense of freedom because you can come northward, you get a chance to worship where you want. The Connecticut Tobacco Growers Association allowed people to work, but whatever church you wanted to go to, uh, you could go to. Uh, these same black tobacco workers, they would sometimes take the trek into Hartford go to Shiloh Baptist Church and other historically Black Baptist churches 
If they wanted to take in a show at the state theater, they could. If they wanted to go to some local restaurant with a Southern uh, twist and a Southern fare, they could go to the cozy spot on Windsor Street and enjoy themselves there and get uh, a same or similar meal that they would get at home. But it would be in a sense in a greater freedom, no signs or anything. Now, this is not to say that uh, there was not racism and discrimination in Connecticut. It certainly was, particularly when it came to finding housing for those who stayed. And in the tobacco field, you find that the workers were often segregated too. Let's talk about those conditions, because as you mentioned, it didn't mean that people here in Connecticut were immune to the racism or the segregation that we often see in cities and towns across the state today. But some people said it felt different in order to navigate some of this. What were the conditions for these these young workers who were coming to Connecticut, both in terms of the conditions in the fields as they were working, but also the conditions for where they were housed or how they were treated within those areas? Some of the workers, when they came up, they would spend their time in the fields during the off time living in tents. You had people who were stringers, who were shorters. And then eventually the growers began to build these barracks where the young people stayed. But that didn't mean that there weren't tensions. And I'll give you some examples. Charles Johnson, famous sociologist Charles Johnson, he wrote a, uh, a um, history of sociological study of that first wave of migrants who came in the 1920s. That was published uh, by 1923 by the National Urban League. And he talked about some cases whereby which uh, when migrants came up from Florida, particularly the area around Quincy, Florida, the landowners in Quincy, Florida, they were very reluctant to have their workers leave and go north because they thought they would not come back. And so to control that, they had their overseers, white overseers, come north with them as well. And part of the process of coming north with meant that black workers would be charged fees to help white overseers come north who were going to watch them in the Connecticut tobacco fields. And Johnson writes that there were occasions where at least one overseer was just known for viciously cursing black workers from the South and using racial slurs almost daily and, and openly. And it was just something that was quite open and, and quite apparent in the tobacco fields at that time in the 20s. I have a cousin who is retired military and still bears the scars of his time working in the tobacco fields in Connecticut and will say that that was the hardest thing he has ever had to do. Not the years of military service, but working in those tobacco fields, feeling as if his health was constantly in danger from the conditions in the fields. Um, they talk about some type of worm or bug that was very dangerous at the time. But also I want to lift up the word that you use, which is overseer. So we're not talking about during enslavement, we are talking about during the 1950s and 60s of people still having this relationship to an overseer. The other piece that I want to ask you about that is how much did these young people make when they were working in Connecticut? And also who else benefited from that? So there had to be someone in the South in order to broker that relationship to recruit people. What was being made what you, you had uh, in the case of, I'll specifically talk about the area around Quincy, Florida. 
uh, you had black men who were down in Quincy, Florida, recruiting black workers. And the same thing in parts of Southwest Georgia, around America's Georgia, Cuthbert, there were recruiters uh, who were paid to recruit workers. Uh, there were also sometimes white recruiters who were paid as well. But usually those fees came out of uh, the pay of, of black workers somehow. Now, you could earn two to $2.50 a day. Now, to us, that may not seem like any money, but for sharecroppers in the South who got nothing, uh, that's a lot of money for people to be earning. Out of that, people saw that when they were established in Connecticut, there were other opportunities. Uh, because eventually in the 20s, there were a few places where particularly Black men could leave and get steady work. And I'll, I'll mention two of those places. Uh, one was the Hartford Rubber Company. And just hearing the name, many people understand clearly why Hartford Rubber. Because if you work around rubber and the rubber industry, particularly around the foundries in those companies, it's dangerous work. And also a lumber company called the Edwin Taylor Lumber Company, um, as well as um, another company called, I think it's called Taylor and Finn, um, that um, dealt with metal uh, and welding and other things. So there were openings there. Uh, but bigger companies, no. Uh, the larger companies that are still around today at least during the World War I period in the 20s, uh, they were not really hiring Black workers. But you will also find that particularly Black Southerners influenced by the tradition of Booker T. Washington, they will begin to build and establish their own businesses as well. And so you'll, you'll begin to see um, a, a growing, particularly growing Black business ownership group by the 1940s. And many of them are highlighted and shown in the Black newspapers in Connecticut of the day. Let's talk about that impact, both the economic impact, not just on Connecticut, but also the, the, the southern towns to which people would return. And so they not only would be bringing back money, you say they also were bringing back this heightened sense of self-determination and, and what we would now call Black nationalism. What was that impact of having this experience here in the North and then going back home to the South? Well, some of them, you know, had already been, they had been certainly influenced by, by Booker T. Washington. And also in the South, they had been heavily influenced by Marcus Garvey because there were more Garvey chapters in the South than there were in the North. And I found interesting enough that some of the same people who migrate from Southwest Georgia some of them were already Garveyites when they got to Connecticut. And so that played into the nationalism and the Pan-Africanism of the period. But what family members would see were people who had come north and they were somewhat successful. Not only successful in having jobs that pay daily wages, but also successful in establishing their own institutions you know, building and transplanting their own churches and also writing and welcoming family members uh, to be part of that, 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 uh, that great travail that makes life from north to south. And they do bring back their funds because they come back yearly for not only for family reunions, but also for school reunions. One of the most interesting thing about the people I talked to was the, the car caravans from south to north 
where people would line up five, six, sometimes seven, eight cars and just drive for 24 hours straight to get to the South. And they would bring that money back and bring that wealth back. But they, they, they would also, in the process, along with bringing that back, they would also inform people about what was going on and the changes that were happening uh, in Connecticut that they were making within uh, Connecticut, particularly Connecticut's larger cities. We're seeing now a trend that some people have called the reverse migration of increased numbers of Black families and Black people moving back to the South or relocating to places in the South. What do you think is the legacy of Connecticut's tobacco industry overall as we see what's happened historically and the kinds of trends that we're seeing today? Connecticut's tobacco industry and, and the migration uh, has been instrumental in establishing um, statewide agencies. And, and particularly, I mean, the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities, uh, because it was a Southern migrant, uh, the Reverend Dr. John Jackson, uh, his beating in the 1940s aboard a train uh, well, I think somewhere around Tennessee, where he was going to the National Baptist Convention, is one of the catalysts for the establishment of that that uh, uh, that commission. Uh, you also have the fact that it's these migrants who are also instrumental in the election of, of black politicians, and in the same way, it's been this wave of migrations, migration of people who are heading back that has been instrumental in changing the vote in the South as well. So it's a fascinating thing that's going on now with this, with this with, with back migration. There's always been that conversation and that connection that stayed from the period of World War I, even up to this date. There's always this connection that's there uh, and this longing to, to be back home. That was Dr. Stacy Close, history professor at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's also a contributor to the book, African American Connecticut Explored. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Emily Cherish, and Katie Tularski. James Scoble Wolf and Shekinah Collier also contributed to this episode. Special thanks to Reverend Philippe E.C. Andal for helping us voice the great Martin Luther King Jr. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.